Welcome to American Midterms. Before we get to the interview, let's talk about some current news. Today is election day and ballots are being cast as you are listening to this. Soon enough, we will know which party is control of Congress and which will be sidelined for two years to come until the next election cycle. As I mentioned before on this podcast, control of the Senate rests on just a few races in Arizona, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Those are the most contested. Those are the most important ones. Those are the ones to keep an eye out for. The Democratic and Republican candidates have traded leads in many poll results in these states. Um, Lately, the Republicans have had an edge because voters are becoming increasingly worried about inflation and about the economy right now. This is these are issues that the Republicans have polled well on and voters are looking for the party that is not in control to fix these issues for them and hopefully help out their pocketbooks. We will see if the poll results are close or if this will be another election cycle with terribly inaccurate predictions. Um, We will find out today. We will probably find out many results later this week as um, early votes and mail-in ballots are also also need to be counted. And now for my interview with Congressman Jim Himes. Today, our guest is Representative Jim Himes. He is representing Connecticut's fourth district in the U.S. House of Representatives. Jim Himes, thank you for being here today. Great to be with you, Matt. Of course. So I want to know first how you're feeling about your upcoming reelection um, and the races for Democrats in the House across the state and America. Yeah, so I feel um, uh, pretty good about my own reelection. At least the numbers we're seeing look uh, look pretty solid. Um, there's an old saying in politics, there's only two ways to run an election. One is uh, unopposed and the other is scared. So I'm not going to uh, put too much stock in uh, feelings of confidence. But, uh, you know, I feel reasonably good about what's happening here in my district. I've obviously been representing this district for a little while and, um, you know, I've had the opportunity to, to help a lot of people and, and folks know me. More broadly, you know, New England's New England, right? Um, it's not impossible. The Republicans, if, you know, they have a very good night, it's not impossible. They might pick off a, a, a seat or two. We, I'm sure I'm sure she'll do well, but my uh, neighbor to the north in the fifth district um, has a real fight on her hands. And we're all thinking about how we can help there. Nationally is, a, you know, obviously a different situation. Um, you know, we have a very, very narrow majority in the House, five votes. Uh, it's 50-50 in the Senate. So, you know, the Republicans don't need to do terribly well to uh, to shift at least one of those houses. So I'm, I'm, I'm not going to try to predict things, but it's obviously it's going to be a big fight for both chambers. Yeah. And we're now in the final stretch ahead of Election Day. And, you know, the Republicans are gaining momentum. Much of that is attributed to inflation and the economy because, Voters seem to trust the GOP more to handle those issues. Why do you think that is? And what would you do if you were sent back to Congress to help manage inflation and the economy? Yeah, those are two really separate issues, policy and the politics. I've been doing this long enough to see the correlation between how people feel about the president of the United States and what they pay at the pump for gasoline. And it's sort of funny when you think about it, because the president of the United States has pretty much nothing to do with uh, the price of gasoline, right? You might even make the case that the president of the United States has nothing to do with the price of gasoline uh, or the stock market or whatever, you know, people look at to decide whether they feel good about it. So, you know, it's just a it's just a factor. I wish it weren't true because people ought to really look at things like, you know, who who is advancing policies that make my life better? Not, you know, is there some magical thing in the White House that causes uh, the president to determine gasoline prices? The reality is, people care about that and they do link it to the current administration. And so that's that's a challenge for us now with inflation 
uh, higher. Inflation is is a complicated thing, right? There's inflation all over the world. It's actually higher in Europe than it is here, right? Is that Joe Biden's fault? It's the same in Canada as it is in the United States. Is that Joe Biden's fault? You know, you know, the reality is that we that coming out of a brutal global pandemic, you know, that killed a million, 1.1 million Americans, it takes some time to get the economy kind of stable and going again. And the one entity that can really work hard to solve inflation is is doing it, not in a happy way. This is the Federal Reserve, of course. You know, they're raising interest rates. And over time, as they have in the past, that will serve to dampen inflation. It's also raising mortgage rates and, you know, creating problems for people that have to borrow money and that sort of thing. But you asked a a very specific question, which is what, uh, what will I do? Having established that there's not a lot that the Congress does to either help or hurt inflation, it is also true that you know fiscal policy matters. If somebody came up with a bright idea, spend a whole lot more money for a fiscal stimulus. I would probably oppose it, right? Because right now we're suffering the inflation that comes from you know too many dollars chasing too few goods. So I'm super interested in the initiatives that we have done. Um, you know the semiconductor bill. Obviously, it's not going to take effect tomorrow, but that's going to move a lot of semiconductor supply chains here to the United States. That will ultimately help. We passed a bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, which uh, not now but soon will cause. Um, prescription drugs to be uh, prices to come down for our seniors. And I'll continue to support stuff like that. And as I said, you know, it is not a time for thinking about uh, fiscal stimulus. And we'll just hope that the Federal Reserve, you know, gets this in hand sooner rather than later. Okay, bring it to foreign issues. You just returned from a trip to Ukraine where you met President Zelensky. They are no longer the focus of the media. I think for a lot of Americans, they have kind of you know, put Ukraine in the back of their mind. Can you tell me about this trip and how the U.S. is still helping Ukraine? Yeah, yeah. So the trip was fascinating, right? It's not an easy trip to do because you can't fly into Kiev. The airspace there is not safe. And so what you do is you go to Poland and, you know, a number of my colleagues and the Secretary of State and others have done this. You go into Poland, you fly down to the sort of the southeast corner of the country and you take a train 11 hours into Kiev overnight. Um, so it's a little bit of a challenge getting there. And look, Kiev's a... Kiev's a nervous place, right? A half dozen missiles or so are landing every single day there. The Russians are trying to take out civilian infrastructure, energy infrastructure. So it's a really scary moment for Ukrainians. I will tell you, however, I mean, I'm not nearly old enough to have been alive in, you know, the Blitz in London in the 1940s and Winston Churchill was, uh, you know, calling it the British's uh, finest hour. That's the way it is for Ukrainians, right? now. They've lost so much. Their answer is this is not over until every single Russian is off of every inch of our land. I mean, you can just see the motivation and the commitment that they have. And it's really, you know, it was really a nice feeling to see how committed they are to this, despite the brutality they've been enduring. I cannot imagine having half a dozen missiles being thrown at the city where I would live during the day. So what is the U.S. doing to help Ukraine right now? Well, as people probably know, we've to date supplied roughly $18 billion in weaponry that has really helped um, turn the tide of the war, particularly some of the long range weaponry that we've provided, the HIMARS, which, you know, can can strike deep behind uh, Russian lines. This forces them, of course, to move their ammunition and their supplies and their command and control way back from the front line. And they don't fight very well, as we've seen, when that's their circumstances. You know, one of the untold stories, though, this I, this matters a lot to me because I sit on the Intelligence uh, Committee. One of the great untold stories is the extent to which um, the U.S., but also Western intelligence services are providing the Ukrainians with a lot of actionable intelligence, stuff they can use in the moment to go after Russian uh, ammunition depots, you know, to warn when there is a Russian attack coming. Um, that's a little less exciting than watching a missile launcher, but it's really, really important to the success of the effort. And it's something that the partnership between the West and the U.S. and, and Ukraine has really, really been important to them. 
Okay, bringing it back to domestic issues, um, we are still seeing mass shootings in schools, unfortunately, and other places. What do we need to do to protect people from guns, but also preserve the Second Amendment? Where is that balance struck? Yeah, you frame it exactly right. And I appreciate that, you know, and I appreciate you framing it as how do we preserve our Second Amendment rights, but but end the carnage, because that's exactly what we need to do. We do have a Second Amendment. I happen to take an oath to uphold the Second Amendment every two years or so. So you frame it exactly the right way. And, you know, this is so important to those of us who live in the general vicinity. I mean, I'm sitting right now 25 miles away from the Sandy Hook Elementary School where we where we saw the tragedy up there. And, you know, sadly, that has become the norm. You know, it feels like every couple of months there's something like that. So what your question was, what what can we do? Um, by the way, uh, we did pass some gun safety legislation, the Bipartisan Safe Communities Act. Um, first one in 30 years, first uh, gun safety legislation in 30 years. It was pretty weak, I must tell you. I mean, I was happy it got done. It had funds for mental health, which are important. My Republican friends always focus on that. It's mental health. But it also tightened up some of the regulations around firearms, including making it easier to do comprehensive background checks for people under the age of 21. It didn't contain some things, though, that would really help. Universal background check. No matter who you are, no matter where you buy a weapon, you get a background check. It didn't have rules on safe storage of weapons, right? And it was kind of a no-brainer. An awful lot of weapons get stolen, you know, and that would not happen. Or kids find their parents' weapons and, and terrible things happen. You asked about school shootings in particular, you know. They're brutal and the headlines are just awful and it takes us weeks to recover from what happens in those things. But the vast majority of gun violence in this country, first of all, um, is suicides. Um, you know, two thirds of gun deaths in this country are suicides. That has everything to do with mental health and safe storage. But if you really do want to focus on those um, on those brutal attacks on schools, you know, we do need some kind of a ban on weapons, you know, people talk about an assault weapon ban and, you know, okay, so how do you define an assault weapon? You know what? We can do that. There are weapons that really are useful for killing lots of people really quickly. And those weapons deserve, you know, really should only be in the hands of people who need to do that, like Marines and infantrymen. So I do think that we need to take some of the more combat oriented weapons um, out of the civilian population. All right. Um, what is the best way to ensure a secure border as a nation, but also allow immigrants to come to America and make it their home? Yeah, it's a great question. And sadly, the political debate often doesn't answer the question you're asking, because the answer is really pretty clear. We need good border security, right? Unless we deal with some of the underlying conditions that drive people to do what look like crazy things. I mean, can you imagine having a child and sending your seven-year-old child, you know, through Mexico in the hands of strangers to get to the United States? I mean, you got to really think about the reason that people do that and whether we can help address the reasons. Number one, of course, is we need to crack down on the folks here, the contractors, the restaurants, the cleaning services that hire people who are not entitled to work here. You know, as long as that keeps happening, people are going to find a way here. I don't care how high your walls are. You know, there's a saying that if you build a 50 foot wall on the border, if there's that kind of economic incentive, the next morning you're going to have a 50 foot ladder against that wall. And then the other thing that, you know, again, if we're serious about this, um, uh, you know, rather than using it as sort of a, a, a political cudgel, you know, there's a reason why people are taking the risk beyond the economies. Um, you know, the brutal violence that exists in places like Honduras and El Salvador, you know, again, you would put your kid, I would put my child, you know, at, at risk to get them out of that environment. So I think there's an awful lot we can do to create the conditions in some of the countries to our south that that won't cause people to say, I need to get out of here at all costs. And we've just sort of never really talked about that, never really invested in it. I think there's a lot we can do there.
A few weeks ago, you had a debate against your opponent, Jamie Stevenson. A lot of the news coverage after that pointed out that you two had a lot in common, a lot of similar ideas. What is the starkest difference between you and your opponent? There was some agreement. Um, there were some very odd moments, um, you know, when she went after me for not doing enough to protect abortion rights mm-hmm. as a Republican. I mean, I, I sort of thought this may be the first time in history that, uh, you know, somebody wow. goes after their opponent because they haven't done enough to stop their own party's uh, <laughs> agenda. Um, but I, you know, I'll tell you, there's one there. There was one thing that was really clangy for me in the debate. It, it was in an early moment where she dismissed the um, Inflation Reduction Act, um, which was largely about reducing uh, drug prices for seniors, but also had a very, very big investment in reducing climate change by developing sustainable energy sources. And she said, oh, it was just a climate change bill. I mean, to me, that was up there with, you know, well, other than that, how is the theater, Mrs. Lincoln? You know, it's kind of like, you know, yeah, it was a climate change bill. And 20 years from now, you know, when Manhattan is in Miami or underwater, you know, we don't want to dismiss things as just climate change. So, you know, we didn't get into the particulars of that all that much. But, you know, I guess one big difference is that I, I, I really do get it. I mean, I dealt with the fallout from Hurricane Sandy and any number of weather events. And, uh, you know, and, and by the way, you know, I watch what's happening in Central Africa and other places around the globe where climate change is putting farmers, you know, into starvation and therefore they move into cities like Damascus and create all sorts of instability. Climate change is an existential threat. I get that. My opponent sort of dismissed it as, oh, you know, no big deal. Congressman, that's all I got for you today. Thank you so much for coming on. All right. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode, a production of QU Podcasts. I'm Matt Harlick and our producer is Grace McGuire. Our videographer is Tyler Salter, and our social media coordinator is Olivia Geckler. Music from Free Music Archive. Be sure to follow us, American Midterms, on Instagram. See you next week.